So let's uh, come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would uh, be gracious to me right now, Lord. Help me to speak your word with uh, truth and conviction and power of the Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear what your word is saying to us tonight, Lord, and hearts to receive it by faith, Father. May we get a big view of our Lord Jesus, who can indeed bring life in the face of death. In his name, amen. Uh, Well, one of the things I've been grateful uh, for since we've moved to Watsonia a few months ago uh, is the amount of conversations that God uh, has opened up with various people in our street and our community. Um, My sense is uh, that sometimes when I'm speaking with these people and uh, I mention the fact that I've just recently taken up a position as a minister, uh, my sense is that they, out of curiosity or conversational obligation, uh, think they need to ask me about what this job involves. And this at times actually leads to some really good uh, conversations to share about Jesus with people. And I was speaking to uh, an older lady the other day who saw me gardening in the front yard and she walked by and just came over and said, look, love, can I just ask you a question? She said, every night before I go to bed, I ask God whether he might just give me one more day, whether he can let me wake up tomorrow. Before I go to bed, I pray that he might give me one more day. Am I allowed to do this, she asked. Now, I'll let you know how I respond to that question a bit later on, but I just highlight her words because I think they provide a good snapshot of the longing that most of us have for life, to keep on living. You see, we long for life in the face of death. The idea that we all have to die that our life will be snuffed out? What's well, overwhelming? Thinking that one day we're here and the next day we're not? That unsettles us, that frustrates us, that sometimes angers us, it certainly saddens us. And so we wish like this lady, can we have just one more day, please? I want to keep living. Well, in this passage tonight, we find the answer to our longing for life in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, by raising Lazarus to life, Jesus shows us his great ability to do for us the unthinkable, reverse the effects of death, and raise us up to eternal life. See, Jesus is on a mission all through John chapter 11 to bring life in the face of death. And we're going to follow Jesus' mission in four sections, which I've laid out for you in the news, in the um, outline. The distressing news, the overwhelming grief, the miraculous sign, and the deathly conclusion. So first, the distressing news. Um, At the end of chapter 10, which we heard last week, we read how Jesus had to flee well north of Jerusalem to escape the threat of the Jewish leaders who had wanted to kill him for claiming to be God. Chapter 10, verse 33. 
And so it's from within that place of safety up north that Jesus receives word from his family friends, Mary and Martha, that their brother and that his good friend, Lazarus, is sick. Now, some of you, I know, have experienced the pain of receiving the distressing news that someone is on the verge of dying. It's hard to hear. It's unrelenting pain. Well, here we see Jesus has been there too. You see, Jesus loved Lazarus. I mean, just look at the way that Jesus' friendship with Lazarus is described throughout this passage. Verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. You see it again uh, when Jesus is weeping by Lazarus's grave in verse 36. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. See, this chapter isn't just giving us a picture of Jesus' great divinity, his deity, uh, that we see in raising a dead man to life. It's actually giving us a picture of Jesus' great humanity. You see, Jesus, like most of us, had a few close friends, and, and he, like us, was actually grieved at the thought of losing one of them. So how does Jesus respond when he hears of his mate's condition? Well, verse 4 tells us of his immediate response. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now, I reckon if I uh, was one of the disciples and I heard Jesus say those words, uh, next thing I'd be expecting him to do is pack up his bags and get ready to go to Lazarus, to go at once to heal his sick friend. I reckon they expected him to heal Lazarus like he had healed the blind man. Everyone saw that. God was given glory. But you see, that's not what Jesus does, is it? He doesn't go. Did you notice that in verse 6? Jesus hears about Lazarus's condition, and what does he do? Well, he's not rushing to the door. He stays put. He stays right where he is for another two days. And it's actually within that time frame that Lazarus dies. Now, at first read, you might be thinking, what's going on here? Like, is Jesus being just a little bit heartless not going to Lazarus. What, I mean, why doesn't Jesus just go like the sisters wanted him to? And I just wonder whether we've felt that way about Jesus in relation to ourselves at some point. Now, why hasn't Jesus heard my request? Why isn't he acting to help me right now? I mean, does Jesus' lack of action reveal his lack of care? And they're important questions to ask if we're going to trust our lives to Jesus. But look at verse 5 that immediately follow, uh, precedes the verse we just read. See, verse 5 shows us it's actually Jesus' deep love for Lazarus and his sisters that makes him stay. See, look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. 
Jesus allowed Lazarus to die not because he didn't love him or his sisters, but the reverse, because he loved them deeply. Because Jesus loves them, he wants to give them a bigger picture of who he is and in so doing, strengthen their faith in him. You see, what could achieve that in greater measure? Lazarus rising from a sickbed or Lazarus rising from a tomb? There would be short-term pain, but long-term faith gain in what this family was going to experience. And I think we can take confidence in that too uh, by what we see going on here. You see, it never feels loving when the Lord doesn't act in the way or time frame we want him to. And we may never find out the reason uh, in this lifetime, like Lazarus's family does, why the delay. But we can be confident that any such delay is not coming from a place of carelessness, but love for one of his precious disciples. So having waited two extra days in which Lazarus dies, Jesus makes the call to return to Judea to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, it becomes clear throughout the rest of this first section that the disciples aren't entirely comfortable with this decision. You see, Bethany, the hometown of Lazarus, was just a stone's throw away from Jerusalem, just about two k's away. And so to go into that region of Judea to Bethany was essentially to walk into the lion's den, so to speak. See, locals of Bethany would have seen Jesus, they would have told the religious authorities, and Jesus would be in trouble. And you see that. Look at verse 8. Disciples say, but Rabbi, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? I mean, Jesus, what are you thinking? People literally just tried to kill you in that place. I mean, it's safe up here. People are believing in you up here. Things are good. Look, I know Lazarus means a lot to you, but if you go down there, you're dead. But you see, because Jesus loves Lazarus, and once to reveal God, God's light and glory, he's actually determined to go, which is the essence of the cryptic words in verses 9 and 10. So Jesus says to his disciples, No, Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I must go and wake him up, verse 11. And you can imagine the disciples, Oh, well, there you go, right? He's, if he's just sleeping... No need to go. I mean, a good night's rest will cure what ails him, verse 12. He will get better and you don't have to go and get yourself killed and everyone wins. Jesus gets clearer, verse 14. Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we might die with him. You see, both the fear of the disciples at Jesus returning to Judea and that intriguing 
devotion of Thomas, his willingness to die with Jesus, they both tell us one thing, that life for Lazarus is going to mean death for Jesus. His love had made him stay, but his love for him is now making him go. And so go he does on a mission to bring life in the face of death. He goes straight into the overwhelming grief of our next section. So let's look at that, the overwhelming grief of verses 17 to 37. Now just try to imagine the sea of grief that Jesus is walking into as he comes into Bethany. And just think about what you might have wanted to say if you were there, if you were in Mary and Martha's shoes. And maybe you would have said something like, Jesus, where have you been? I mean, we've been crying for our dead brother for four days straight, and now you come. Well, what's going on here? Lord, I, I, I just don't really understand. I mean, you healed that blind guy that you didn't really know, but you let your own friend die. See, just look at Martha's grief and confusion in verses 20 and 21. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we see that grief, that confusion again in verse 32 with Mary. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, again, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We even see it from the Jews, the people around them, who had come to mourn with the sisters. We're told of their tears of grief in verses 33. And we see their confusion and frustration bubble up in verse 37, don't we? But some of them said, Well, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Grief, confusion. Uh, one of the things that mark out a good leader from a bad leader is the leader's response to tragedy among their people. I think we, we've seen this following the recent Christchurch massacre. Jacinda Ardern has been praised in much of the media for her deep empathy and obvious care for the victims. We see what we learn from Jesus' response to this tragedy is that he not only shows a deep care that is matchless, but he actually, actually promises to fix the problem. You see, it's one thing to genuinely care for victims of death. It's quite another to reverse the effects of death entirely. But that's what Jesus is promising here, great care, a great solution. So let's have a think about Jesus' deep care first. I mean, we see this um, most clearly when Jesus stands before the tomb of his friend, uh, Lazarus, with Mary weeping at his feet. Let's look at those verses, 36, 33 to 36. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. 
Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Now you might be thinking, that sounds quite compelling, but I'm just not sure why Jesus is weeping, why he's so upset here. I mean, he knows, doesn't he, that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? We saw that in the first section. Well, I think the answer to that question is that Jesus in this moment is not just seeing the death of his friend Lazarus, though he's certainly seeing that, but he's actually also seeing the havoc that death brings upon all of humanity. As C.S. Lewis writes this, We follow one who stood and wept at the grave of Lazarus, not surely because he was grieved that Mary and Martha wept and sorrowed for their lack of faith, though some thus interpret, but because death, the punishment for sin, is even more horrible in his eyes than ours. At the end of last year, I visited my nana, uh, my last remaining grandparent, who was dying in hospital. And as I walked out of that hospital room in Bendigo, I actually just paused to take one last look at Nana. And I just thought in that moment, this is the last time I will ever see her again. And it was. Uh, people talk about uh, death in some circumstances bringing a sense of relief, but that never makes death a good thing. You see, in, in my relationship with Nana, death had now robbed me of someone that I loved. Someone that, who had looked after me year after year. Someone that took me to play golf. Someone that made countless delicious slices. And that sucked. You see, death is our greatest enemy because it never stops robbing us of people. Grandson from Nana, husband from wife, child from parent, friend from friend, on and on death goes until one day it robs us of our own life. One day someone leaves the hospital room thinking, I reckon I just saw Chris for the last time. See, death is unrelenting in its misery upon us. Jesus sees that in this moment, summed up in the death of his close friend Lazarus, and he weeps over it. Jesus knows the pain of losing a close friend. What we'll see is Jesus knows the pain of death itself on the cross. But that actually should serve as a great reminder that we can go to Jesus in our grief, knowing that he gets it and knowing that he cares deeply. But you see, Jesus doesn't get just care deeply, does he? He actually promises to do something about it in these verses. Read with me his conversation with Martha 
in verses 21 and following. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Martha had seen enough to know that Jesus did work in the power of God. So that trust was still there. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. See, Jesus in this great I am statement, Jesus is saying that he is the source of life in the face of death. Jesus himself has the power to raise dead people to life, eternal life. I mean, the claim Jesus is making here is massive. He's saying that, uh, that despite the fact that we all physically die, he in himself has the power to reverse that effect of death and raise us to life. I mean, no one's ever come close to delivering something like that. I remember driving in my car a number of years ago and hearing uh, this lady speak, Dame, uh, Professor Dame Linda Partridge. Uh, she's a world-renowned uh, researcher into the biology of ageing. I was listening to her speak on the radio, and at the time she was uh, working towards the development of a pill that slows down the effects of ageing on our bodies. And I remember thinking, driving in the car, man, I could live to be 120 if this thing comes good. But it's kind of a band-aid solution, isn't it? I mean, as good as that is, it doesn't really solve the main problem. I mean, we all still die. You see, an aging pill isn't even worth comparing, although I've done that, to what Jesus offers you here. I mean, we, we need to look at these two and think, I don't want the pill. I want the promise of Jesus in this passage. Because he doesn't just give me another 50 years of life with all the disappointments that come with that, the griefs, the sufferings. No, no, Jesus promises to raise me up to eternal life. Uh, in the face of overwhelming grief, we see Jesus' great care and we see and we hear of his great solution. So let's keep following uh, Jesus on his mission to bring life in the face of death by looking now at this big miraculous sign. Now you might have noticed that the author of this gospel, John, has been at pains to point out throughout this chapter that Lazarus was truly dead. I mean, there is no stunt being pulled here, although critical scholars like to think so. But just think about it, verse 14. 
Lazarus is dead, verse 17. Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Verses 21 and 32, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man kept this man from dying? This is not resuscitation. This is resurrection. And we see this point being reinforced in Martha's response to Jesus' requests in verse 38 to roll that stone away. See, what does she say? Verse 39. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, Lord, by this time, there is a bad odour, for he's been in there four days. I love how the King James Version translates this verse. It says, Lord, by this time he stinketh. (laughs) See, Martha's saying, Jesus, why do this? He's long dead. I mean, do we really have to open up his tomb only to have everyone here choking on the smell of death and bodily decay? But what does Jesus say? Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When uh, when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. See what just happened here. Jesus speaks, a dead man rises. I mean, the power of Jesus, all he has to do And this decaying, all he has to do is speak, and the decaying corpse of Lazarus changes. Or the heart starts beating again. The eyes under the cloth start twitching. The mind starts thinking, where am I? And then the the legs start walking towards Jesus' voice. See, it's often noted in the commentaries that The authority of Jesus is so great here that had he not specified Lazarus by name, all the tombs would have opened up and given up their dead. Uh, Now this miracle, along with the other miracles of John, you may have noticed, is called a sign. We see that in verse 47. And like the various signs that you would have driven past on the way here that you will drive past on the way back home, this sign points beyond itself to something of greater significance. And you see, this sign is showing us, above all, the greatness of our Saviour, Jesus. This sign shows us that Jesus has divine power. He can raise the dead. He is God. This sign confirms that Jesus really is the Son of God that Martha confessed in verse 27. This sign shows us that Jesus has the power 
to defeat death itself. And this sign points forward to the greater resurrection that believers in Jesus will receive on the basis of Jesus' own death and his own resurrection. And the great news uh, that this sign speaks of is is that Jesus is going to give his people so much more than what he gives Lazarus here. You see, Lazarus was raised to life, and we rejoice over that, don't we? It's a miracle. It's a great thing to read about. But he still got old, got sick, and died again. Lazarus was raised only to die again. You see, those who believe in Jesus will be raised never to die again. Uh, a while ago, I was writing a sermon in the Watsonia Library, and a lady just saw my books and Bible on the desk, and um, we just got talking about those. And at one point, I just asked her uh, if eternal life was something that she might be interested in, wanted to know more about. And she said, Not really. Hmm. I don't want to go on living forever. Um, I'm still learning how to have good conversations, um, clearly. Uh, But you see, it's not just this life with all its disappointments, with all its fears and, and failures. It's not just more of this life Jesus is promising us here. No, no, it's it's so much more. It's spiritual life in relationship with God that cannot be snuffed out. And you see, it doesn't just start when we die. It begins when we put our trust in Jesus. But it does continue the moment we physically die and our souls go to be with Jesus in heaven, which the Apostle Paul says is much better by far than living here on earth. But it's also a life that finds ultimate fulfillment when Christ returns and our souls are reunited with our raised and glorious bodies. Walking, talking, living forever in God's new world with no pain, no tears, no suffering. I probably should have mentioned that to this lady, right? (laughs) See, that is the eternal life that Jesus came to give in the face of our death. Jesus' mission then to give Lazarus life in the face of death is a foretaste of his greater mission to give us eternal life in the face of our death. What we'll see in this passage towards the end is that life for Lazarus will result in death for Jesus as he angers the religious rulers and they set on a course to kill him. Life for Lazarus will result in death for Jesus. But what we see is the death of Jesus results in life for us. So we come to the deathly conclusion in 45 to 57. See, though many see Jesus' miraculous sign and believe in him, 
Some, we are told in verse 46, go and report Jesus' activities and whereabouts to the Pharisees. Now, how do the religious rulers, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, respond when they hear that Jesus just brought a dead man to life? What? He, he raised a dead man? All right, guys, I think it's time we acknowledge that we have been wrong about this guy. Uh, maybe we need to reevaluate our stance on Jesus. No, they don't say that, do they? No, the, the, the horrifying thing uh, about the end of this passage is that they, they look at Jesus' life-giving act and think this could really hurt us. They're angry at the thought that Jesus' popularity might be seen as a threat to Rome. They're angry that Jesus might jeopardize their own position of power and influence if he ends up ticking off the Romans. Look at verse 47. They say, what are we accomplishing? Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So what do they do? Well, we see Caiaphas, the high priest that year, step in at this point. And what's his conclusion? Here it is. The death of one man for the life of the many. Notice that? Verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Now here's the key though. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he had prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. You see, this is a glimpse of God's sovereignty in action here. At the same time that Caiaphas tells the Sanhedrin of his plan to murder Jesus, he is unknowingly speaking of how God has planned to save his people through the death of his son. The death of one for the life of the many. See, what this passage is ending on really is the note of the cross. From this point forward, Jesus is entering into cross territory. They are out to get him. It reminds us that to have life, Jesus has to experience death. You see, death was never supposed to be part of this world that we live in. And it's no accident that death became our reality. See, death is God's response to our sinful rebellion against his rightful rule over our lives. Uh, it's physical death, yes, which we all experience, but it's bound up with spiritual death in eternal judgment. By dying on the cross, Jesus is graciously taking our place, our punishment, so that we can have life. We don't have to experience that death. 
He substitutes himself for us. And you see, in raising Jesus to life after his death, God is declaring that Jesus' sacrifice is acceptable. So that anyone who trusts in Jesus, God says, your sins are forgiven. And in him you will have life forever now. While this passage provides an answer to our longing for life, it tells us that life is found, actually, in the face of Christ. And so I guess what I want to briefly just finish on are two points to think about. Our death that we are faced with and Jesus' question that we are left with. So how are you currently dealing with the reality of your death that is always there in the picture, maybe off in the distance somewhere? I know that's a bit of a morbid question, but in light of this passage, it kind of needs to be engaged with, I think. Now, there are many different approaches uh, that people take in order to deal with the uncomfortable reality of death. But I detect three particular ways that most Aussies tend to deal with death. Distraction, prevention, and delusion. Distraction, prevention, delusion. See, we distract ourselves from thinking about death. That's one way around it. It's easier that way, just fill our lives up with entertainment, busyness. And so you know how it goes. Uh, you're watching TV. Uh, you see an ad come on TV about the effects of skin cancer. You look down at that weirdly shaped mole on your arm and you suddenly get that pang of anxiety. But instead of following that thought through, you instead change the channel to the block. That's the one. And then you can think, ah, oh, someone else's problems to look at. But you see, the problem with ignoring death is that it just simply won't make it go away. It's always the same result. It's going to be there at the end of the day. But secondly, we try to prevent it. So we watch what we eat. We go to the gym. We take all the vitamins and the minerals and the medicines we can get our hands on. And actually, that works for a while, doesn't it? Staying healthy. But ultimately, fit people still grow old and get, simp uh, get sick. And simply buying a bit more time isn't really a solution, is it? Just puts off the inevitable again a little bit longer. But we also make up delusions to give us a sense of comfort in the face of death. Maybe we tell ourselves we'll become a star in the sky or some such thing. But the real reality is our delusions are just that, delusions. And they offer no real hope at all. You see, the problem with distraction, prevention and delusion when it comes to dealing with the serious reality of death is that those options are all just useless. But Jesus is telling you to look at the evidence of John 11. Look at what he did to Lazarus. 
Look at the evidence of his own resurrection after he was put to death. And let him deal with your problem of death. You see, we stand really tonight in Martha's shoes. You see, like Martha, we have heard Jesus' statement that he is the resurrection and the life. And so we are asked the question that she is asked, do you believe this? If you believe in him, you will live even though you die. Do you believe this? And one of the most profound moments in um, my ministry uh, came when I read this passage to a man who was literally dying before me in hospital. Now, some of you heard that story last year on camp. Uh, now, he wasn't a Christian, and he may well have lived his life with a mixture of distraction and prevention and delusion even. But you see, when he lay there on the very precipice of death, and when he heard about Jesus and and listen to what he did here. Heard about his death and his resurrection. He came to see that, well, Jesus was really his only hope in that moment for eternal life. And so he believed. Uh, if you are here tonight and you don't yet follow Jesus, well, don't wait for a moment like that man, because you may not get it. Believe in Jesus tonight. Receive his life and look forward to your future resurrection. But if you do believe in Jesus, then take comfort from the fact that though death remains for us, the sting is gone. You see, death for Christians is no longer a pathway into eternal judgment but into resurrection life. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that because the sting of death has been taken away for Christians, that now we should give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know the la your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Uh, many of you serve uh, um, amongst us in various Ways, rosters, Sunday school, youth group. Some of you are serving in student ministries. See, Jesus' victory over death means that all of that is worth it. You can give yourselves fully to it. Uh, I, I spoke with the Sunday school teachers this afternoon and actually told them just that. See, my daughter Camille learns valuable things in her art class her PE class, her spelling class, but the one place outside of home that she learns about the one who gives her eternal life, well, that happens for around about 40 minutes or so on a Sunday morning by Sunday school teachers here telling her about Jesus. Actually, I care about that deeply. So what did I say to the lady on my street uh, who came up and asked me if, it was, if she was allowed to ask God for one more day? Uh, well, I tried not to overcomplicate the matter, 
but I simply spoke of the Jesus of John 11. I responded to her by saying, uh, yeah, sure, look, uh, you're allowed to ask God for life. I mean, he's the only one that can give life, so it makes sense to ask him for life. Uh, but just a question, I, I know this might sound a bit um, uh, confronting maybe, but are, are you prepared for that day when God would say no to your question to have one more day? Oh, yes. Yep. I've got all my funeral arrangements ready. Uh, I know how I want to be buried. I know how I want the ceremony to go. Uh, again, I'm learning to be clear in my conversations, and, but that just happens, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, that's really good. It's actually good to be considerate of uh, others and to be prepared in that way. Uh, but just let me tell you some good news. See, Jesus came to give you uh, so much more than just a bit more of this life, another day. See, Jesus came and, and died on a cross, and God rose him to life again, raised him to life again, so that even if you do die, you'll actually be kept secure in his care. And one day, he'll raise you bodily to live with him forever. You see, what we need is not simply just one more day, a little bit more of this life. What we need is the Lord Jesus who gives us resurrection life in the face of death. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. I thank you that by believing in him, uh, we have a solution to the greatest problem of our lives, our death and judgment. Father, I pray that we might trust Jesus. Lord, if there is anyone here who does not yet know and follow Jesus, I pray that you might reveal yourself to them and that they too might come to know the eternal resurrection life that he is offering them tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.